the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. We often hear that so-called green energy, namely wind and solar power, is the future of energy, but a closer inspection shows that they're inefficient and unable to provide our society's energy needs. Fossil fuels, on the other hand, are reliable, cost-effective, and able to provide energy well into the future. Another important source of energy that has the potential to transform our society is nuclear power. Introducing nuclear power could help elevate developing countries out of poverty, especially those without access to coal and other fossil fuels. My guest today is Dr. Kelvin Kemp, who will be discussing the details of nuclear power windows. Dr. Kem is chairman of Stratic Global PTY Limited, based in Victoria, South Africa. He's a nuclear physicist and is past chairman of the South African Nuclear Energy Corporation. Dr. Kem started work as a research and development scientist, then moved into the management of technology and became involved in a wide variety of projects in many industrial sectors. He developed high technology systems and frequently went out in the field to work on developments firsthand. Dr. Kem has been a plenary guest speaker at the World Nuclear Association in London and at the World Nuclear Exhibition in Paris. He chaired the opening ceremony of Atom Expo in Moscow in 2016 and was a plenary guest speaker at the African Union Economic Summit in Mauritius in 2017. Dr. Kem has also given both Senate and congressional briefings in Washington, D.C. So welcome to the show, Dr. Kem. Well, thank you very much, Tom. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. One of the things that I think a lot of people are ignorant of, I mean, David Suzuki here in Canada, when he talks about nuclear power in the past, he would have bombs going off in the background. I guess the intention being to make the association between bombs and nuclear power. But I mean, maybe it would be a good place to start to actually tell us how does nuclear power work? Well, in fact, the fact that you mentioned nuclear bombs is interesting because, of course, nothing could have had a worse birth as far as the public was concerned than nuclear in the sense that what they first heard about was the bombing of Japan at the end of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those two vast bombs that had been kept very secret up until that point, and they heard, this is what nuclear power is, bang, bang, you couldn't get worse than that. So there was definitely a scare in the beginning in association with nuclear. However, of course, it during those explosions, there was a significant death toll from the blast. There was a significant death toll from the heat and from the immediate blast of radiation. Then there was a lot of fear of all the genetic defects and everything that were going to apparently occur. But interestingly enough, from the Second World War until like now, there's never been a single genetic defect detected in humans or animals from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm. So the fear of there being long-lost genetic mutations or whatever is just unfounded. So now what happens with nuclear? You know, in thermodynamics, there's a rule that says you can't create or destroy energy. You only pass heat or some other form of the thermodynamics from one to the other. Mm-hmm. However, Einstein came up with his famous equation of E equals MC squared. And there's a little joke I must tell you here. This is a okay. true story. Einstein yeah. met Charlie Chaplin. And when Einstein met Charlie Chaplin, Einstein said to Charlie Chaplin, I really admire your work. You don't, don't say a word, but everybody knows exactly what you mean. 
And yeah. Charlie Chaplin said, well, you're far more famous than me, and I really admire your work because you say lots and lots of words and nobody's got the faintest idea what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. <laughs> and that's, that's interesting because Einstein's become absolutely famous. And everybody knows Einstein, but if you say to the man in the street, what did he do? Well, I don't actually know. There's this relativity thing or something, and that's about all they know. Yeah, yeah, that, right. That famous equation, E equals mc squared, tells you that energy comes from the mass of something times the speed of light squared. Now, that mass can be a brick. If you take that brick and are able to convert it 100% into energy, it'll drive the biggest ship in the world around the world about 100 times. That's what that thing oh. tells you and why it was so amazing at the time. Wow. And we can't, we can't now take a brick and do the nuclear conversion, but we can do it with uranium. What happens is uranium is the biggest atom that naturally occurs, and it's pretty unstable. And if mm -hmm. you get a neutron traveling at just the right speed and you smack the uranium, it breaks into two. And it's like taking an orange and you take a knife and you slice that into two halves and the two halves fall apart. And you have two halves with a flat face. Mm -hmm. As the two halves of the nucleus fall apart, they immediately reform into two balls. They don't stay halves. And as they reform into the two balls, they give off the excess energy that was needed to hold the whole nuclear. And that's where the nuclear energy comes from. Okay. And that comes out as heat and radiation and so on. And so the amount of energy stashed away in the nucleus is unbelievable. You know, it's absolutely staggering when you see the numbers. A piece of uranium, for example, about the size of a Coca-Cola can will provide you all the energy you want for your entire lifetime. You couldn't get wow. that out of coal or, or anything else. Really impressive what you can get. Now, obviously, in the earlier days, people were scared of it. And I must say, from the science side, the public relations was poor. As time went by, the anti-nuclear lobby, which initially was anti-nuclear weapons, which I agree with entirely, and Africa was declared a nuclear weapons-free zone uh, some time ago, the first in the world, in fact. And oh. named the Pelindaba Treaty, which is the name of the headquarters of the South African Nuclear Authority that I was chairman of. I'm all in favor of nuclear weapons free zone, but that's completely different to talk about a nuclear free zone, which is a different matter. Mm -hmm. We use nuclear for nuclear medicine, use in agriculture, industry, all over. And one use is for nuclear power. So, you know, I'm very comfortable with nuclear saying that nuclear power is not dangerous if you treat it with respect. Mm -hmm. Like with anything, you know, if you if you take a box of sleeping pills and you say, I want to buy some sleeping pills to give me a good night's sleep, that if you take one, it'll work. If you take the entire box in one shot, it'll also work, but you'll never, ever wake up again. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you take two liters of petrol and pour it over your head and then strike a match, two liters of petrol will kill you as well. Yeah. So all of those things can be terribly dangerous if you are stupid. Now, similarly with nuclear, there's no doubt that nuclear radiation will kill you if you are stupid and you do something foolish. But if you treat it mm -hmm. with respect, it's very safe. And I'm quite comfortable in saying it's safe, you know, within the confines of doing something doffed, which most people don't do. So the nuclear energy is very clean. It comes out of the atoms like that. And to my mind, it's the best energy that there is. I think in the matter of 20, 30, 40 years or something, the entire world, maybe not 20, but let's call it 40 years or something from now, the whole world will be running on nuclear energy. And there will be history mm -hmm. teachers and classes at school saying to the children, you know what, 
way back at the beginning of the 21st century, there was a strange aversion to nuclear. Today, we find it hard to understand why those people were so odd. They were supposedly intelligent at that time. So with that heat that comes out of the fission, the breaking apart of the atom, then you use it to create steam, right? Right, yes. The heat comes out, and then you take that heat, and you turn it into steam, and from then on, it's exactly like, say, a coal-fired power station or anything else where that steam goes into a turbine, and the turbine turns the generator, and the generator produces the electricity. From the steam onwards, there's no nuclear involvement. It's only the actual reactor itself with the mm-hmm. nuclear is. So that's fission, and that's the kind of energy that we use today, and we've used for half for more than half a century. But what about the other kind that people keep talking about? I keep seeing these T-shirts. You know, we're only 20 years away from, you know, conventional power plants run with nuclear fusion. But is that, you know, they used used to feel that was like uh, a little bit exaggerated. (laughs) Well, um, yes, we don't know when the fusion will come about. Uh, Moving all of the time, but it's one of those things. It could be a breakthrough tomorrow. There might not be a breakthrough for another couple of decades. Now, what happens is the most stable atom that there is is iron. Iron sits in a position where essentially everything wants to become iron. As I mentioned, iron. If you get a, okay. iron, yes. If you look at um, uranium, uranium is big. Imagine a whole lot of golf balls all glued together. Okay. Uranium has two hundred and thirty-eight nucleons in the nucleus, those are either protons mm-hmm. or neutrons, so imagine 238 golf balls glued together. If you hit mm-hmm. it with a hammer, say it will likely break it, or it has 235, but that's the one that you get for the enriched uranium, we call it 238 for now. And if you look right at the other end of the scale, you get hydrogen, which is only one. Mm-hmm. And then next up is helium, which is only two. So if you look at something like two golf balls stuck together, or three golf balls stuck together, you can see that two are not very well stuck. It's much better to put, say, four together. Mm-hmm. So from the bottom end, the helium and the hydrogen, they'd rather go up in size towards iron, and the uranium wants to come down towards iron. So when you split the uranium nucleus, you get energy coming out. But when you take two hydrogens and join them together, they don't need as much energy and they then go off. And that's the fusion. That's where the word fusion comes from, to stick together. So what you want to do is you want to stick hydrogens together. That's what the H-bomb was, developed by a fellow called Professor Edward Teller, who was named as Time Magazine's Man of the Year one year. I mm-hmm. met Teller a couple of times. and What an interesting fellow. I had tea with him. The but, fusion but will how- give off much more energy than, than the fission. So, I mean, a person who doesn't understand much about this might say, well, then why aren't we using fusion? Well, fusion, what has to happen is you've got to take these things and squeeze them together. Now, two protons repel. They don't want to be squeezed together, but if you squeeze them hard enough, they eventually get to the point where there's a strong nuclear force that overcomes the repulsion of the electromagnetic, and then they stick together. So you've got to squeeze like crazy. It's like trying to push two magnets together when you're putting north to north pole the magnet, you, it's very difficult to push them together. So to get the fusion to fuse, you want to get them up to a very high temperature, which means they're moving fast, and then you want to squeeze them. And you can't squeeze and get high temperature because they easily, because they contract. The more high temperature you get in a, in a gas or a plasma, the more it tends to not want to be squeezed. So that's mm-hmm. the trick at the moment, is how you technologically jack up the temperature to a significant temperature, and squeeze it at the same time to the point at which these nuclei will actually fuse. 
that's what it's all about. And there's various ways of doing it. Some has been with magnetic confinement. Others, they, they take a little pellet and they hit it with very many laser beams at the same time and all of the lasers squash this little pellet together. So there's a number of tricks that people have been trying to try and get the fusion to work. And lately, there have been some successes where they've been able to get some fusion to take place, but it takes place for a few seconds. And they shout with joy and say, look, we've got half a dozen seconds. That's a completely different level of technology to letting it run for hours and hours and hours that you can make a power station out of. So that's the real obstacle then, is, is holding yes. it there long enough. That's correct. Mm-hmm. I've no doubt that science will eventually solve it because science effectively solves everything as you move along. And sometimes it's quite neat in your mind to go back to the days of Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and people like that and say, well, look at those guys did with the limitations of the materials. You look at what Leonardo da Vinci was able to design, but he had only wood and rope and canvas. He didn't have aluminium and nylon and whatever. If you'd given him aluminium and nylon and things like that, he would have made all sorts of things would have worked. He had the intellect to do it, but not the materials and the tools. He didn't have a precision lathe and a milling machine and so on. So, you know, as the tools improve, mankind learns and learns, you get cleverer and cleverer. Because of course, the sun works. Up until Einstein, scientists didn't understand why the sun worked. Because the normal calculations of something burning like wood on a fire just said the sun couldn't possibly have lasted this long. And it was only when that E equals MC squared equation came around, they said, good heavens, that's how the sun does it. That's oh, how the yeah. sun gives you so much energy without burning itself out in, in a very short yeah. time for them. One of the main benefits of fusion, if we ever get to the point where we could actually run power stations on it, is that the waste is very limited. Is that correct? Yes, the waste actually comes out as helium. The helium is a proton and a neutron and a proton and a neutron joined together. There's a type of water called heavy water. And heavy water is an isotope of hydrogen, whereas instead of having only the proton, you have the proton and a neutron. So, in fact, it's easier to take a proton and neutron and a proton and neutron and squeeze those together to get a helium than it is to get the two protons, because you've then still got to find two neutrons. There's also another isotope called tritium, which is two neutrons and one proton. You can make water of all of them. And if you make water out of the the proton and neutron version, it's called heavy water. During the Second World War, the Germans were developing a heavy water plant and the British Special Air Service's soldiers and commando unit was sent in to destroy this water plant. And I was told this is critically important because the uh, American and British authorities at the time knew that the Germans were developing this heavy water and they suspected that they were developing nuclear weapons as well. Right. They couldn't possibly tell the soldiers. They said, so you've got to go in this incredibly dangerous mission to blow up a water plant. And I said, why on earth do that? And it wasn't until some decades after the war that people realized what it was that they actually did. So it's, they were right to pay attention to it. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Terry Rogers was a professor of mine at Carleton University. He was a nuclear engineer. And he would say that you could hold a used can-do reactor bundle in your hands safely after only 400 years. Do you think he was being correct? Probably, I'd have to go and have a look at what exactly was there to tell you that the 400 is correct. But mm-hmm. yes, in the sense that what happens with nuclear radiation is a statistical as to whether a radioactive nucleus will disintegrate by itself. It's quite odd. 
So you'll find a radioactive nucleus may disintegrate in the next two seconds or it might take another 20, 30 years or something. And that is measured by what's known as the half-life. If you mm -hmm. take, for example, a kilogram of radioactive something or other, they've all got measured half-life. So I say this has a half-life of a minute, which means after one minute, half a kilo is decayed away and, and it's no longer radioactive. After mm -hmm. another equal length of time, another half and another half. So what happens is it never, ever goes away entirely. You always go half and half and half and half and half. So this is where the argument comes that something is radioactive for 10,000 years or 100,000 years or something like that. But it could long before the end of that long, long line, it's no longer dangerous. For example, the human body has natural potassium-40 in the human body, which is radioactive. So there's a measurable amount of radiation that comes out of every human being anyway. Mm -hmm. You also get these granite tops that you have in kitchens. I'm sure you have them in Canada. It's common in South Africa. It looks very smart in your kitchen. The granite is quite radioactive. So are bananas. So a banana on a granite top in the kitchen is quite radioactive. If you measure it. <laughs> yeah, I don't see, yeah, I don't see people scared of that. <laughs> no. If you had a factory that had a banana on a table and was applying for a license and they came and measured that, they declared this factory is too radioactive to be allow <laughs> workers to come in. Some of the criteria that are laid down by legislation are so ridiculously low that this is the type of thing that happens. They make bananas <laughs> illegal. Wow. And so, so this is where, again, when the public are told something, they're told, gee, was you didn't touch a banana, for example. And there's even, in fact, you can even look up on the internet, you'll find they call a thing called the BED, which is the banana equivalent dose. It's actually even a, a measure which is used a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. So, so it is the case that when, um, for example, uranium nuclear fuel, when it goes into a nuclear reactor, it's so mild and benign, you can carry it around. You're not allowed to if you're breaking the rules because that's not good practice. But you can sit and have your lunch next to a fuel element without any trouble whatsoever. But when that fuel element came out, it's so dangerous that if you walk past it, you wouldn't survive. So that is why they know that. So when the fuel elements come out of the nuclear reactor, they're very professionally handled. And this is controlled, I'll say controlled in inverted commas, by organizations like the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is an interesting organization because countries such as Canada, South Africa, and so on belong to the International Atomic Energy Agency, which means you sign all their contracts to behave yourself. There's not in principle any way that they can come and actually put you in jail or something if you don't obey the rules, but it's like belonging to the golf club. If you belong to the golf club, they tell you what the dress rules are in the bar and what the dress rules are for dinner and things like this. If you turn up with the wrong clothes in the bar, somebody will diplomatically come and whisper to you, you're not allowed in the bar wearing those clothes, you're to be respectably dressed. And when you're out on the green, you certain things you're not allowed to do out in the green because that's not gentlemanly conduct. And if you break the rules a few times, they will ask you please to leave the club. Now, it's the same with the International Atomic Energy Agency. If you break the rules, you'll get censured and everybody else in the club learns and they start to not want to cooperate. So mm -hmm. you find that the respectable nuclear bodies of the world, the organizations and countries, fall on over themselves to be cooperative so that they all belong to the club. And that is how come the thing works so well. And if, if we heard that the Canadians were doing something foolish and breaking the rules, they're mechanisms for us to say, you know, you fellow shouldn't really do that. You, you're sailing too close to the wind and tell the 
International Atomic Energy Agency, they come along and say, stop it, and if you don't listen, you'll get into trouble. Yeah, and everybody's sure. so fearful of getting like thrown out of the pub at the golf club that they all toe the line. Mm-hmm. And so nuclear has got a particularly high standard of safety because of the earlier fear of nuclear and so on. You found that extremely good conduct is always exhibited in nuclear, far better than you'll find in any other energy source. And the nuclear people are proud of this, and they tend to make sure that it stays like If you were to look at your crystal ball and say, okay, when will we have nuclear fusion power plants generating electricity? Do you think it's going to happen in this century? Yeah, I imagine it probably will happen in this century, but not in the next decade or two or so. So there's, there's no reason to not put the nuclear fission into place with great speed. Mm-hmm. And if I really thought that fusion was going to come about next year, I'd say, well, let's just wait for next year. But it's not going to do that because mm-hmm. you know, even getting the first sort of laboratory-level fusion working would be a massive step forward. And then there's still a huge difference between uh, letting it run for 15 minutes or an hour than getting an actual power station operation. So there's, mm-hmm. there's a long way to go with fusion. But mm-hmm. you know, like Einstein came on the scene and suddenly changed the outlook and other scientists have come along and things suddenly change with it the jump, it could happen with fusion that somebody discovers something that all of a sudden overnight there's a great leap forward. But mm-hmm. one can't bank on that, so you've got to assume that it's still quite some distance away. For our children, we may very well see nuclear fusion power, so that's right. great. Right. Keep working mm. on it. Who are the leaders in the research on that? There's various. There's, there's a big system going on in Europe, but the Russians are working on it and the Japanese and it's very expensive. It's this big, expensive machinery. So smaller places do aspects in laboratories at universities, but to actually build a potential fusion machine like that is big money and you need collaboration and so on. So there are not many of those. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of nuclear that is a great excitement. And this is why yeah. me being a nuclear person, I just think it's one of the greatest areas of fun and huge advances for mankind. Oh, yeah. And that's why it's a and, pity and these... to find so many members of the public are scared. You know, they mustn't well... be now, one thing we hear a lot of talk about for future is small modular reactors, or SMRs. Can you tell us what's the difference between the normal large fission reactors that we generate most of our power with here in Ontario and these SMRs? Well, what happened was when the first reactors came about, they were certain size. The first ones were small, and they'd been designed sort of just after the Second World War. And then people buy normal scale they said well you make it bigger you get more bang for your buck so to speak so reactors got bigger and bigger and bigger and into the 70s was when reactors were really being built in the states and elsewhere around the world but during the 1970s was also when the anti-nuclear sentiment started to rise and that is what curtailed the further development of nuclear reactors around the world and went into a plateau which is a pity then there were various people looking at them and say what other alternatives are there what other designs can we use and so on and also, do we need very big ones? Now, in fact, interestingly, South Africa was the first country in the world to start designing a commercial small modular reactor. And that was done in the 1990s, we started, 1993 to be specific. Mm-hmm. We're now in a position where we've got one uh, here in Pretoria called the HTMR100, which we are ready to build. It's been fully designed. And so what happened here, South Africa is big. And Canada is big too. But South Africa is the same size as the whole of Western Europe added together. 
Mm. All our coal, which is our main electricity source, is clustered in the far northeast of the country. But down in the, the south is Cape Town. Now, the distance between Pretoria, where I am, and the coal is beyond me to the north, but the distance between me and Cape Town is the same distance as Rome to London. Oh, so wow. way back in the 1960s, the planners of the day said, golly, we can't keep building the economy of Cape Town on the basis that they're getting coal from the coal fields. When I was in London, I said to people in London, how would you like it if half of London's electricity is coming from Rome? And they said, good heavens, that would be ridiculous. <laughs> We'd never do a thing like that. But we were yeah. doing it. So what happened is the fellows in the 60s and that said, well, let's build a nuclear reactor in Cape Town, which they did. And we have now the world's most southerly nuclear power plant, which is Kubo in Cape Town. And it produces 50% of the power of the Western Cape region, which is the southern province. But the other half is still brought via very long transmission lines from the coal fields. So planners sitting in the early 1990s, and I was involved back then, said, look, we've got to do something in the middle of the country. Because in the middle of the country is where a lot of the big gold mines are and other industrial activities. And so they said, well, there's no water. South Africa, unlike Canada, South Africa is a country that's very water scarce in land. We tend to be much more arid and full of lakes and there's virtually no snow here, oh, yeah. only in the mountains and very rarely in some of the other towns. So we haven't got water to spare. So we said, well, we have to put something that doesn't need water. And they said, well, nuclear is the best thing to use, but the nuclear on the coast uses a lot of water for water cooling. So I said, well, how can we come up with a nuclear thing that doesn't need water? The upshot was they said, well, let's start designing a pebble bed reactor. Now, I'll explain that in a moment. And they said, well, a smallish one, like 100 megawatts. The Kuberg is 2,000. So we started designing a 100 megawatt small reactor uh, that did not need water. It is helium cooled, so that you can put it near the gold mines and the, the gold mining areas of South Africa. And that's how the whole thing started. Mm -hmm. And we designed that to the point to which we actually started to build it in like 2008. And the pressure vessel was ordered from Japan. It arrived in South Africa and sub-assemblies were starting to be manufactured. And then there was that big subprime mortgage story in the United States, uh, the international financial crisis that happened in 2008. Uh, South Africa had an abrupt change of president, which was unexpected. Mm -hmm. And there were a few other things that all converged to a perfect storm at that time. When the new president came and he promptly said, well, we'll put a lot of these major projects on hold while we sit and think about it. So the, the nuclear project, which had the biggest nuclear team in the world working on it, there was 2,000 people on that nuclear development project. They were working out the colors of the carpets and things like that at this stage. <laughs> they put that whole thing on, on hold when the pressure vessel had already arrived. And the hold, we thought, would last a few months, but it was never lifted. So to this day, the hold is still there. Oh, but gee. a number of those scientists then left that project and went and started again and have now designed this reactor I mentioned a moment ago, the HTMR100, which was designed to be faster and cheaper to build. There were a couple of technological changes that were made, and we've now got that design, which we think is a far superior design for a number of reasons. So that's what happened. The modular the idea is that you can make them in a factory, for example. You know, in the, in the 70s or so when reactors were being built, you would have a welder go out and site and weld outdoors. And obviously a good welder can weld pretty well, but not 100% all of the time. 
And I used to visit motor car factories like this Ford factory here that exports Ford cars all over the world from South Africa. There's a Mercedes-Benz and a BMW plant as well. And when I first visited these plants years ago, there'd be people with verniers and micrometers measuring things up. Now you go into the plant, it's all robotics and laser beams and the cars passed from one stage to another with laser beam measurements and robotics. There's no longer humans there with welding torches or spray painting. It's all done by robots. Now, similarly with, with nuclear reactors now, you can build these modular reactors in a factory, get the precision of lasers and robotics and all that in a factory. You make all the parts there and send out the assemblies and you just essentially put it together on site like a Lego setup. Yeah, That's yeah. Part, part of the argument. You can also then put a number of reactors onto one control room. That first reactor that we designed, we allowed for 10 reactors on one control room. So you can now go at a pace that you can afford and the pace that the country wants, particularly when you look at all the potential customers in Africa, where mm-hmm. something like a two or 3,000 megawatt plant is, is very big and expensive. Mm-hmm. So you can now buy a 100 megawatt on a control room and all the associated workshops, and then add a second one. But you don't need all the other stuff. You've got the workshops, you've got your admin building, yeah. you've got your turbine wall. You just add another reactor that effectively plugs into the, the, the control room you already got, and you can do, say, 10 reactors. I'd like to describe the situation here in Ottawa, and maybe you can tell me after the break if it would be applicable here. Absolutely. I'd be pleased. Okay, great. Well, stay tuned. We'll be right back with Dr. Kelvin Kim, chairman of Stratic Global PTY Limited, based in Pretoria, South Africa. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix Rex nasal solution cleanse. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at CofixRx.com. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products, toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track, in an easy, effective, and very tasty way. Switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. On the 
America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. I'm back with Dr. Kelvin Kim, chairman of Stratec Global P2Y Limited, based in Pretoria. He's a nuclear physicist, and we're learning a lot about this amazing technology. I had a question, Dr. Kim, about the city I live in, which is the capital of Canada. It has a, a million people, and they're determined to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. And I was going through their energy plan, and they don't say a single word about nuclear. And it strikes me that the small modular reactors surely should be part of Ottawa's long-term energy plans. Oh, absolutely, Tom. I'm absolutely amazed that it isn't the case. But certainly, mm-hmm. if you want to reduce your carbon dioxide emissions, by far the best way to do it is by nuclear. Nuclear emits absolutely nothing, no CO2, no waste, no nothing that comes out of it while it's running. There's no liquid effluent, there's no gaseous effluent, nothing. Only the actual spent fuel at the end, which you then take out under very controlled conditions, but there's nothing coming out of it. And so you really, really need nuclear, absolutely. And uh, which quite surprises me because I was under the impression that Canada was quite keen on small modular reactors. I read about it. And also way back, uh, gee whiz, at about the year 2000, I had a number of phone calls from Canadians who were interested in buying our reactor, in fact, at the time, to extract the the oil from the tar sands. Because Mm -hmm. one thing you can do with the small modular reactors, you can either make electricity with it or you take the heat straight out. Our one, for example, the, the gas that comes out of our reactor is comes out at 750 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. That's way above a normal pressurized water reactor, which is typically 250, maybe 300, something like that. So 750 is hot. So what the Canadians were keen on when they telephoned me, which went on for about six months, is to take that and push it down, drill holes under the ice and so on, snow where your oil is frozen into the tar sands, and melt the tar sands with the succeedingly hot gas and water and so on, and then pump it up again and extract mm-hmm. the oil. And as far as I'm aware, Canada is still very interested in doing that, particularly up in the far north where it's, it's very cold. So mm-hmm. I'm surprised that uh, Ottawa has not put it into their well, plans. They certainly should. Yeah. Well, you see, I think what's happened is at the national level, the federal government are pushing nuclear, and I think that's great. In fact, apparently there was a lot in the most recent budget. But the city of Ottawa is being pushed in certain directions by local environmentalists. And I guess the fact is they just simply don't understand nuclear. So they're responding by having zero, not even the word nuclear comes up in their whole energy evolution document, which must be a good 80 pages or something. So, so yeah, it sounds like, like how would you actually use small modular reactors, let's say 10 years from now when they're fully functional and they're actually using them around the world, what would you do for a city like Ottawa? Would you bring in four or five of them? Well, you can put as many as you like. And in fact, what, one of the great advantages too is they can be privately owned and they can also have an independent grid. So you don't have to connect the reactor to the national grid. You can go to some area, you can have a, you know, your own grid, which is 
two or three or five or ten kilometers in diameter, whatever you like, and you can put the reactor there to supply one industrial area, for example. Mm-hmm. No requirement that you have to connect it to the national grid. So you can take it to remote areas and you can put one there, but in the city of Ottawa, you could have one in the north, one on the east, south, west, wherever you like. You can mm-hmm. dot them around. They're very, very, very safe. Our one, for example, is absolutely uh, meltdown proof. It's impossible to melt down. So it's what's called walk away safe. If the worst of the worst were to happen, this sort of joke here is if the worst of the worst happens, the best thing all the staff can do is go down to the pub and sit there for a while and have a chat as to what to tell the newspapers and who's going to phone the boss and stop. Because <laughs> the, re- the, the reactor has been designed with passive safety, in it, which means the laws of physics have been designed to favor the reactor closing itself down in the event that something goes wrong, which was not the case in Chernobyl, by the way. That uh-huh. was a big fault in the Chernobyl incident. But uh, the, with a passive safety, in our case, the reactor can rise up to a temperature of 1,600 maximum, and then it will just sit there for a day or so and start to cool down over the next few days. And the reactor's been designed to take a temperature of 2,000. So there have been extensive tests and calculations and computer simulations and everything. So it literally is the case that if something goes horribly wrong, you just all go off to the pub and sit and say, well, oh dear, there's no mm-hmm. panic stations like has been postulated so often. So a lot of the fears are completely wrong, but also in the case of the extreme greens, quite frankly, they don't want big centralized power. I've had debates with these fellows from Europe and so on, where they say to my face, they don't want a lot of electricity in the world because then people will buy more cars and more air conditioning and they'll do this, they'll do this, and it's all bad for the planet. So if you look on the sites of places like Greenpeace, what they actually say on many of their websites, we're trying to limit world GDP growth. So they also don't like nuclear because it implies reliable electricity inexpensively. We don't want that. Yeah, it's safe. It's not just that. Yeah, absolutely. Very safe. I would happily pitch pitch a tent in the grounds of a nuclear reactor and live there with complete confidence I wouldn't like to pitch my tent in the grounds of a coal-fired power station yeah, or below yeah. the wall of a hydro power station. You could put them right in the middle of a community. You could bring one small modular reactor yes. and you don't have to move everybody out. Yeah, oh, fact, if, you, be a- if you look at some of the images on the internet, they're making these artist impressions from other companies. They're making them look very stylish, like the headquarters of a big company in the middle of the city, all glass and aluminium and shiny and so on. That's yeah. what they're looking like. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. when do you think they would be ready for full-time operation to provide power to a city like Ottawa? Well, we say we can get ours up and running, the first one delivering electricity in five years. Then Mm -hmm. the numbers two onwards would be three years, but one could probably start building number two halfway through number one. You don't have to get number one finished before you would have the confidence to start building number two. So I would say in half a dozen years, there'll be one's running, producing electricity, and then it's three years per one to build. And of course, you can build half a dozen in parallel, whatever uh-huh. the, the industrial capability of the areas. If you've got enough welders and you've got enough tool makers and enough, you know, it's the tradesmen, uh, the cost, highly skilled craftsmen, which are the critical input usually. Those are the fellows yeah. that you need to make all the pieces. When most people think of nuclear power, they think of something like Darlington, which is huge. But this would be fairly small, like its footprint in a city like Ottawa, which oh, you had, if you had four of them, it wouldn't take up very many city blocks, would it? No, no. Ours will fit on, our one will fit on a football field. So football uh, field. If, it were two, 
you know, one, one football field, the entire power station will go. And if you want a second one, it'll effectively also put there, because I say you just put a second reactor, you don't have a whole complex. But if you had a second football field, you could put half a dozen more reactors on the second football field. Wow. So it, yeah. it is very small. And if you want to, and that, that's even then allowing quite a bit of adequate space around it. If you want to really squeeze it, if the, if the local rules allowed for it, you could squeeze the fence even closer. Ottawa's plans include 710 industrial wind turbines, 60 stories high. They have to have a half a kilometer or more setback between those and a nearby home. So, I mean, the question came up during the mayor election that happened last fall. Well, where are you going to put 710 turbines? And, you know, it's funny because the council member, yeah, well, she was responsible largely for the climate change plan. And she just sort of giggled and said, oh, well, haha, we don't really think we can put that many turbines in Ottawa. But the fact is, you don't need this kind of setback for a small modular reactor. No, no, no. I've stood next to some of these turbines. And if you walk up, stand next to one as it's turning, it, there's a significant vibration and noise. Oh, and yeah. there's quite a shock I got once when I walked up and stood there and there was a notice on the bottom of the turbine tower that you had to get quite close to look at. And I walked up and I read the notice on the bottom and I said, watch out for falling blocks of ice. And I thought, Four. good grief, these blades are, are as big as a, as a football field. And yeah, they're turning around and you could get a kilo or two of ice on this blade and it's flicked off. Can you imagine what happens with two kilos of ice going through the air flicked off one of those blades? So I would be very nervous pitching my tent below a wind turbine and spending a couple of nights there, whereas I'd happily pitch it in the grounds of a nuclear power station. And of course, the very unreliable power. I mean, you you know, the think the capacity factor where, you know, the ratio between the sort of advertised power and the amount of energy you really get out of them is in the neighborhood of around 30%, isn't it? Yes, for wind, it's about 30%. For the nuclear, it's 90, 95%. Huh. the wind, interesting, they, they, they say 30, that's the sort of maximum you're likely to get at all. Uh, very intermittent, of course. But in Germany, over a couple of years, they measured what they actually got. And the figure, as I recall, was something like 17 so it oh. was half of the 30. So the, the reality was much, much less. And in the case of wind turbines, I understand they generate this low-frequency infrasound, which apparently penetrates your building and your body and everything. Yes. There was, there's a fellow I know, uh, I've never met him, but I know him from telephone calls and so on, who lives in East Germany. And he lives in a little house or cottage which is listed as a national monument. There's a number of them. And he told me that he's lived in this place for years and he's not allowed to drill a hole in the wall without getting authority from the monuments people and he can't paint and he, there's nothing he can do because these things have been preserved because they're historical monuments. He said they put a wind turbine in the neighborhood and when they put the wind turbines and it's shaking these buildings to pieces, there's cracks all over oh, the place. Man. Because, because of this. They also in the area had uh, two eagles, eagles mate for life. And these yeah. two eagles had been there for years. And they were like mascots of the town. And every year they'd breed and a baby eagle would come along and so on. And the one year, the one eagle flew into one of the turbine blades. Ah, uh, this type of thing. There, there was also another story of a, a man that went out walking with his daughter. He was going out for a walk, his adult daughter. And he suddenly collapsed on the ground with uh, apparently the symptoms like of a heart attack. They grabbed him and took him off to hospital. And, and in the hospital, they checked him out and said, no, there's no sign of a heart attack. There's nothing. They kept him there for a couple of days and then discharged him saying it's a mystery. 
he went back home and he, over the next couple of weeks, he took it easy. He was fine. And him and his daughter went out for another walk. And again, they went out walking under the wind turbine. And again, the same thing happened. Oh, wow. Again, rushed off to us. They came to the conclusion that it's the, the wind turbine was doing something that was inducing a symptom like a heart attack. Oh, gee. There's, so there's also indications, by the way, that the turbines channel lightning down between them that strike the ground. That is immediately counterintuitive. You say, wait a minute, this turbine is, a, is an antenna. It should now act as... Is a lightning conductor, and if anything, not induce lightning, but it doesn't. It creates an ionic band around the turning blades and actually channels the lightning down through the middle. And interestingly, I was invited to be guest speaker at the Dairy Farmers Association annual meeting a couple of years ago. And I told them about some of this, and two or three weeks later, I got a phone call from one of the dairy farms saying, Last night there was a thunderstorm with severe lightning. And the one farmer lost 43 cattle dead in one night, and another farmer lost 12. And these were farms that had significant wind turbines on them. Other farmers that refused to have wind turbines lost none. Huh. And they said, is it the turbines? Look, I can't tell you it is. You know, I can't make that statement over a telephone. And I'm not certain. But there's a distinct possibility that it was the lightning that struck them. He said, it's, mm-hmm. it's very weird. It didn't ever happen in the past before the turbines came there. And if you look wow. on the internet, you'll find papers there about the effect of the ionic uh, ionization of the air around the turbine, and therefore it will affect the um, you know, electromagnetic fields and therefore the path of lightning and so on. So there's a lot of things they don't know about the wind yeah. turbines. Well, you know, one other thing I've heard that they don't really know is that if you think about it, the wind turbines obviously take energy out of the wind. In the summer, in a very hot day, then presumably you'd have, and let's say you did have 700 turbines all over Ottawa, presumably a lot of the sort of convective cooling that would occur due to the wind would be reduced. Absolutely. And I think also what might well happen, yeah, there's also been an effect that's been detected, which may or may not be linked to that. But as you say, it'll take the energy out of the wind. So that wind coming past might have pushed moist air a couple of hundred kilometers, which then rained 200 kilometers away. If you take all that energy out of the airflow, it might well not rain where it used to rain. Mm-hmm. So now if the environmentalists are concerned about minor disturbances in the environment, which could be amplified, this is something that could well do that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're wow. concerned about certain gases into the atmosphere and so on, but a whole lot of wind turbines, particularly like onshore, you know, along the coastline, which they often put them. So the, the winds coming off the oceans, for example, that are bringing the water inland that cause the rain and so on, which is one of the things that here might be the case, is a place where the wet air comes in from the sea and then deposits inland. And now they're finding that the rainfall is maybe not what it used to be inland, and it's possible because of the, the energy is not what it was in the winds. So wow. I think that's a distinct possibility. Again, there's not enough work being done, and of course it kills birds at a, quite a significant rate. So, you know, overall, these wind turbines are nowhere near as environmentally friendly as they claimed, and that's, that's my opinion. You might have seen Michael Moore's film called Planet of the Humans. 
And he shows in a two-minute clip that I'll include under this podcast when it goes up on the podcast on Monday, he shows in a two-minute clip the environmental impact of wind, solar, and batteries when you actually look at how they're made and how they get the materials. And it strikes me that for a certain amount of power, you're going to get a hugely, maybe a hundred times more environmental damage by putting up wind turbines rather than just bringing in modular reactors, small modular reactors. Yes, absolutely. And as you said about the 710 for Ottawa there, because you only get it at most a third out of it, you've got to have a huge overcapacity. Then what you can also get is if the wind does blow well, it blows so well that you actually produce too much power that the grid can't take it. So you find they put brakes on the wind turbines. So what it does is it generates a massive headache for the people that run the control systems to We've got a central control room in South Africa that controls the entire country, watches the electricity over the entire country and shifts electricity around and so on. And to those poor fellows when it's going up here, down there, up here, down there, all over, it's just changing and changing and filling in and filling in and switching on this battery and so on. Much better, it's just a nuclear reactor that just sits there steadily and the chap can sit in the control room and read his magazine as long as he keeps watching the dials and so on. So yeah. why induce so many headaches in your system, putting in all these variables into the thing? Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me that all they would need to do then is a relatively small sort of environmental footprint. They bring in a small modular reactor, let's say, in the north part of Ottawa, another in the south, and they'd run them for, what, five or ten years? And then the truck would come and take it away and bring in another. Is that how it would work? No, 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 no. No, you, you don't take it away. They're designed to last 40 years. 40? And oh, you, wow. Yeah, oh yes, probably 60, but we say 40 in the design spec. The, the fuel balls are as big as a cricket ball. And uh-huh. uh, in there, they've got uranium, which is the size of grains of sugar. And these grains of sugar have each got a silicon carbide coating around them. We, we make them here in Pretoria. And then they've got a few other layers around them to allow for expansions and so on. So each grain of uranium has its own containment vessel and that the silicon carbide shell around it, then it's inside the graphite ball, and these balls get thrown in at the top, so to speak. And over the next sort of two years, they slowly fall towards the bottom, and then one by one, you take them out of the bottom when they spent. And then you mm-hmm. put them in, in the spent fuel storage. So you never have to switch it off for refueling, unlike the pressurized water reactors, which have big metal fuel elements. About every 18 months, you've got to switch the reactor off to pull the fuel elements out and put fresh ones in. With a small modular reactor of ours, you just continuously feed balls and at the top you take them out the bottom. So you never have to turn it off. The only time would be when the power station managers decide that he intentionally wants to do that for some maintenance run or for whatever reason he might want to. And then, of course, you would know that months in advance, so you would notify all the authorities to ensure that other power is available for when you take uh, one or more of the small modular reactors offline for maintenance. There are some that have been designed that you've obviously read about, the idea being that you just remove the entire reactor. That's how the nuclear submarines work. You, mm-hmm. you after you know, the other lost the entire lifetime of the nuclear submarine or halfway through its life, they bring it into dry dock, open it up and do a whole engineering rework on it where they pull this thing out and put a new one in. But that's mm-hmm. a different type of uh, small reactor. Mm-hmm. But our one was deliberately designed to be very simple like that and last forever, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So for a city like a million people, you'd have what? Maybe four modular reactors, as you were saying, one in the north, one in the south, one in the east, one in the west. And that could provide all your electricity. 
Yeah, I don't know how many exactly you would need uh, calculations on what your power consumption is, but certainly, you know, a small number on a small, you know, a few football fields, not whatever it will take now for 710 wind turbines. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so there's a huge difference. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like they should redraft this uh, energy plan and, and actually look at what would be really beneficial to the environment. And that clearly would be nuclear, not these wind turbines. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, if you look at, on the internet, you'll find pictures in London and New York and wherever at the, the later 1800s when motor cars were taking over from horse-drawn vehicles. And you'll find pictures like in London of motor cars going down the road, overtaking a horse-drawn cart and so on. And at this stage, people say, ah, oh, these motor cars are a newfangled idea that people just play with, but the good old horse and wagon and whatever is going to be the mainstay. But of course it wasn't. But you didn't have to have a law making horses illegal as of next week. It naturally took over. The same with steamships, metal steamships taking over from the wooden sailing ships. The same thing happened. There was a quite a rapid replacement once people realized the steam-driven metal ship was a better bet than the wooden sailing ship. Now, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, that's where we are now. That nuclear will naturally take over. The coal will just die away of its own accord if you do nothing. All this legislation and everything that certain countries are bringing in like Germany, that to my mind has been quite crazy. I think that's just highly disruptive and it's very damaging to people. I mean, here in South Africa and Africa in general, it's it's something that really irritates me, to be quite frank. When we get some of these Europeans coming here and giving essentially orders, you will cut back on your coal or else we will put sanctions on you and we'll stop you this, we'll restrict that. And that. All these threats come out against us. And they say, but a number of African children are going to die. Their hospitals can't be built because we can't have, there isn't enough money. They say, bad luck, it's one of the consequences of this. That's effectively what's said. I've had one of these greenies to my face, so I've said a number of people die. He's tough luck, that's part of what's necessary to, to make this conversion. So in my <laughs> mind, that's immoral. Yeah. yeah. You can't do yeah, that. You, you, the, the advanced Western world made all its money out of coal. And now they say, you can't follow in our footsteps because we're telling you you can't. They can't do mm-hmm. that. In contrast, yeah. you'll find China and Russia, for example, saying, you're not interested in listening to you. They're racing ahead, building nuclear reactors at a great rate, and exporting nuclear reactors all over the world. At the moment, Russia is building you know, reactors in Egypt and elsewhere. They are really capitalizing on the market while the traditional Western world has sat there shooting itself in the foot, letting them... Yeah. Go ahead, you know, from a business point of view, it's a silly thing to do. Yeah, and it strikes me that you want a prosperous society because you remember there's something called the Kuznets curve. And he got some mm. sort of a Nobel Prize for this, where he showed that, mm. yeah, at the very beginning, as a society industrializes and becomes richer, the impact on the environment becomes greater. But you get to a certain point where the impact on the environment actually starts to reduce. So sensible environmentalists would want our societies to become prosperous because then we would do better jobs of environmental protection. Exactly. It's well known that the wealthier people get, the more education is taking people out of poverty and giving them education and prosperity. They naturally become more responsible citizens. They start to understand these things. And uh, that's just the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that if you ruin a city's energy supply, you're going to have more and more people buying fossil fuel powered home generators in their backyard, and you'll have more pollution anyway. Exactly. 
That's exactly mm-hmm. the type of thing that happens. It's, as soon yeah. as there's too much political intrusion into an engineering system, it messes up the engineering system. Is it economically viable? I mean, is it something that we can afford? Absolutely. The cheapest electricity in South Africa right now is nuclear power by far. It's absolutely wow. undoubted. And these yeah. pebble bed reactors and so on are inexpensive. Again, it's a green false story that gets projected around that nuclear is very expensive. It isn't. Yeah. Right. There's some capital cost up front, but when you work out the lifetime of 40 years, it's well worth it. It's like buying a house. Yeah. Certainly when I bought, bought a house when I was in my 20s, I went and signed on the dotted line and I signed for more money than I absolutely possessed and, at all at that stage, way over. And that's what most people do when they go and get a bond on a the house. They sign for much more than they've got. When you put a nuclear reactor down, you decide you're taking that money, you're building this nuclear reactor, and you're 40 years out of it, probably more, and it's really a beneficial thing to do. And you smooth it out, and these supposed big expenses are just not true. Well, on that note, we have to end. We'll have to have you back. Well, Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. Well, I certainly did as well. So thanks so much for being on the show, Dr. Kim. This is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.